الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدي أنهم سبولنا سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم It's part of human nature that as you begin to advance yourself in something then it becomes more and more difficult to to reflect upon yourself as you begin to advance yourself in something it becomes more and more difficult for you to actually stop uh, and and actually look deeply into where you are in general so for instance someone who let's say you know advances themselves in their profession you know they begin to get different titles right they'll maybe go from let's say somebody becomes a clinical instructor and then they'll advance themselves to an assistant professor and they're pushing and pushing and pushing themselves associate professor and then professor you know rarely will it be that that person will actually stop and take a look back and really determine is this something that they should be doing is this something that's actually beneficial for them right this is this is just a general principle as you begin to accumulate wealth for instance this is a very this is very common it's part of human nature that you know once you advance yourself in something or and and more so once people begin to recognize you for whatever it is that you're advancing yourself in it becomes all the more challenging for you to take a step back and actually have to reflect upon your life Right. This is a this is just a principle. Um, the scholars of our past they were a little different, and in particular the ones whom we think about today as those people that have revived her that have kept alive our Dean fourteen hundred years later. A sort of salient characteristic of theirs is that despite them gaining the acknowledgments and gaining the attention of, of people, right? In, in this regard, it's actually for something that you could say for the most part is beneficial for them. They would often stop and really look at, take a deep look within themselves and see, well, who, who, who am I really as a person? So we see this example in particular in the life of Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah. We've all sort of heard, we've all heard his name. Many of us have books of his. Many of us have appreciated the uh, effect that he's had in general on our deen and in the preservation of our deen. So much so that even you know, Orientalists and, and, and people that believe and don't believe are in agreement that this individual is someone who revived this deen. This is someone who preserved the, some of the key features of our deen and we are absolutely indebted to him and all of his works. And many of us don't actually know the journey that he took. And I thought I would just spend a few minutes talking about this so that we can take lessons ourselves from the journey that Imam Ghazali rahimahullah took. Now, you probably know that he was, he was born in the, in the present-day area of Iran. That's where he was, that's where he was born. And he, uh, despite not having his father around, even in his youth, he advanced himself very quickly in, his, uh, in the academic side of his deen, you could say. Quickly mastered the Qur'an, quickly mastered hadith, quickly mastered... Uh, all the different branches, uh, tafsir. He mastered these things very quickly, and he advanced himself so quickly. And we're sort of fast forwarding through his life. But by the by, his mid thirties, by his mid thirties, he had accomplished more than almost anyone else at that time had accomplished in terms of what he had studied in Deen. He advanced himself very quickly, 
And it said that by about age 35 or so, around in his 30s, he was appointed to be the, you could say, the top professor at the Jamia Nizamiya in, 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 uh, in Baghdad, in, in present-day Iraq, which was considered, was deemed to be the top university of its time. You know, the top university of the world was considered, was, was actually in Baghdad at that time. This was many hundreds of years ago. Right? It was the, you could say, the, the Oxford or the Harvard of today. This is where Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, not, he wasn't studying there. He wasn't just teaching there. He, was, he had reached professor level at this institution. And he was deemed to be sort of the foremost authority of Islam at that time. Now think about it. If someone reaches that point in their life where they're now recognized by the, their peers, they're recognized by other professionals, those that are sort of equivalent in their field, and then the governing bodies are also giving you this title and this responsibility and this endorsement, at that point you could say that this person achieved the pinnacle of their deen. Well, certainly of their academic career, certainly of their professional career they've achieved it, but this wasn't, that they weren't just mastering you know, microbiology. This was someone who had mastered the Islamic sciences. So you could say that this person had accomplished the pinnacle of deen being the, the scholar of the day. The scholar of the day. Yet Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, he writes in his own words that despite having achieved this, he himself felt this... Uh, this turmoil within his own heart. Despite having achieved this, he felt this turmoil within his own heart. He perceived, you could say, this, this lack of connection and sincerity with Allah. Someone who's achieved this degree, I mean, put yourself in that situation, just felt that they hadn't achieved their desired connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then he began to pursue. And he decided that, you know what, I'm going to begin to look at the various disciplines of Islam and even the various academic disciplines that were rampant at that time. Theology, rationalism, these things were really overtaking the Muslim ummah at that time. And in general, this was the, this was the, uh, uh, this was the academic, you know, um, these were the areas in particular that people would focus on. So Ghazali, in search of his connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, despite knowing the deen inside out, cover to cover, top to bottom, felt that there was something lacking, and he decided to explore all of the different uh, domains, you can say. So he looked inside Islam, he looked outside of Islam. He looked at philosophy, for instance. And he dug deep within philosophy and the philosophical arguments that people had about time and space, and even the, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote Muslim philosophers, and yet he didn't find what he was looking for. He was looking for something much more meaningful. He didn't find it. He didn't find it. He looked into theology. He looked into mathematics. And he has this, he, he looked deeply into math and tried to explain things through math. He wasn't able to do it. He, tried, he looked deeply into physics. He looked deeply into uh, metaphysics as well. And in search of what you could say is the core of Islam, and yet he wasn't able to find it. Then he came across the sawuf. He came across the sawuf. And he began to quickly realize that the heart of Islam lied in the sawaf. He began to quickly realize that what he was seeking, what he was looking for, what he was lacking despite becoming the foremost alim you know, of, the, of that time, felt that there was something lacking in his heart and the way by which he would be able to fill that void was through the sawaf. He felt, he know, he felt that it was the, the core of Islam. And he began to, and now look, he's, he's in a post where he's a professor. He teaches all day. He teaches. Some of you maybe are in that position. He t- this is what he does. And not only did he teach, but he was the one that everyone depended on. Yeah, the highest level courses were taught by Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah. So he 
thought that, look, I know that the sawuf is something that can be studied, but unlike the other sciences, it is both a combination of theory and practice. There's some experience involved. How am I going to leave my post and actually be able to practice it? So he said, okay, I'm going to start with this studying it. Many people say they want to study what it means to become close to Allah. You know, many of us have decided and we want to sit with somebody and actually study it or read the books about it. He said, okay, I'm going to start with that. Knowing that this isn't the actual, um, I'm not actually achieving this goal, but I'm going to study it. So he studied the works of many of the great mutasawwifin uh, at that time, many of the great ulama at that time. He studied, he looked into the books, of, he looked, read all the books. He read it thoroughly. He read all the books of uh, Junaid al-Baghdadi, rahimahullah. And he read the books of Allama Shibli and many others. And as he began to read, he recognized more and more that the core of his deen, what he was looking for was a lasting connection with Allah, a sincere connection with Allah. He began to realize that this is exactly where it lied. That he was in a dilemma. And in his mind, he knew that he had to take a step back. He felt that there was insincerity in his efforts in deen or in dunya or however you want to call it. He felt that he needed to take a step back. He was in this struggle, this toil with himself. What am I going to do? If I leave this post, who's going to teach? Who's, I'm the head. I mean, there's no one above me. Who's going to take my... Who's going who's gonna to teach? Who's going to be... Um, who's going to replace my post? Right? Some, sometimes this... It comes into our own mind as well, right? When we decide that we have to make a sacrifice for our deen, right? Sacrifice for salah, sacrifice for, you know, whatever it might be. We often think that who's, who's going to replace me? I'm the, you know, president of such and such thing. I'm the leader of this and this thing. I'm the father of my family, my kids. Who's going to watch them? We, we have all these things that come into our mind. You know, I'm the top, you know, you know physician in, in, my, in my area. If I don't leave it, who's going who, who's gonna to save the world? I've been saving the world for this long. So I'm going to read to you in his own words, and it's a translation of what he, this internal struggle that he faced. He said, I found to my surprise that I was engrossed in several studies of little value. All of the studies of, that he had done in his life, he deemed it to be of little value and profitless as regards to my salvation. Look, Imam Ghazali had his eyes on the prize. or When he was reflecting, he had his eyes on the prize. It was his salvation with Allah. I know that I have to stand before my Allah on the day of judgment. This is the, you, if you want to simplify life into one sentence, it's that I'm in this world and, I ha- and eventually I'm going to leave and everything that I've done is going, to be, is going to be presented before my Allah and I'm standing before my Allah uh, re- requesting and begging for salvation. That's life summed up in a sentence. I guess that was a long sentence, but it's a sentence. But he said, okay, I recognize that it was profitless as regard, with regards to my salvation, meaning I, need, did, I needed to rectify my relationship with my Allah despite me being the top scholar of that time. I probed the motives of my teachings and found that in place of being sincerely consecrated to God, it was only actuated by a vain desire of honor and reputation. SubhanAllah. He, he's saying this. These are his words. It's a translation. I perceived that I was on the edge of an abyss and that without an immediate conversion, I should be doomed to eternal fire. Imam Ghazali rahimahullah saying this. Still, a prey to uncertainty, one day I decided to leave Baghdad and to give up everything. The next day, I gave up that resolution. So he comes into this point where he says, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to now leave for the sake of my salvation with my Allah. I'm going to turn toward this path 
of 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 drawing drawing myself nearer to Allah and whatever it takes I'm going to leave my posts I'm going to leave my responsibilities there's nothing that's more important to me than myself right so this is this is what he's saying but what would happen the next day he would give it up and say I can't do it I can't take that step I advanced one step I immediately relapsed one step I immediately relapsed in the morning I was sincerely resolved only to occupy myself with the future life in the morning, he would wake up and say, this is it, I'm going to focus on my akhirah, I don't care about this dunya anymore, nothing is more important to me than my akhirah. In the evening, a crowd of carnal thoughts assailed and dispersed my resolutions. On the one side, the world kept me bound to my post in the chains of, of covetousness, and on the other side, the voice of religion cried to me, up, up, your life is nearing its end, and you have a long journey to make. Uh, if you don't uh, think now of your salvation, when will you begin to think of it? This is, this, he's reflecting. Then my resolve was strengthened, and I wished to give it all up, and said, this is it, I'm going now. And then shaitan would come returning the attack and saying to me, you are suffering from a transitory feeling, don't give way to it. How many of us have experienced this? Right? Where we desire that, we said, this is it, I'm going, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make myself toward Allah, and then we turn away. We, toward Allah, we turn away. We, toward Allah, we turn away. You know, and then sometimes we make this, this resolve and say, you know what, this is it. And then, we, then something comes and tells us that, you know what, ignore it. That's just, a, these are feelings, we don't go based off of feelings, we just ignore it completely. So he's saying, shaitan came to him and returned the attack and said, you are suffering from a transitory feeling. Don't give way for it, for soon it will pass. If you, give it, if you obey it and you give up your fine position, the honorable post exempt from trouble and rivalry, you're comfortable where you are right now. This seat of authority is safe from attack. You will regret it later on without being able to recover it. So this is this constant challenge that he's facing. Eventually, Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, decides that, you know what, I'm just going to leave this to my Allah. I'm just going to leave this to my Allah. Whatever Allah Ta'ala decides for me, this is what's going to happen. He didn't make that step. Although he was constantly in this turmoil. And, and we have to remember that when a, when a believer begins to reflect upon their state to the degree that Imam Ghazali is, this is a good place to be. Right? We might think that, man, how did he not take that move and go toward Allah? You know, he kept on being deceived back and forth. I'm going to go, then I'm not going to go. I'm going to go, and I'm not going to go. But that mere state of conflict that a believer often finds himself in, this is a sign of progress toward Allah. This is a sign of progress toward Allah. When the vast majority of, of believers aren't even thinking about my relationship with Allah, if Allah Ta'ala grants you the ability and the tawfiq to actually think back and reflect upon your state, whether you make that move or not, this in and of itself, in and of itself is a blessing from Allah and we should be indebted to Allah for this. So what happened? Eventually, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala causes the tongue of Imam Ghazali to stop working. He's a professor. You can't teach without your tongue. He causes his speech to completely arrest. He couldn't talk. He couldn't talk and whatever it was that was going on even caused him to have trouble eating. And it became clear to him that this Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has something different in store for him. So the physicians of that time in Baghdad, you know, the best physicians, obviously there's a concern that the top person in the top post of the most important university in the world is is not able to speak. So the physicians at that time, they got together, they examined him, and they basically said that, and this is the terminology, and this is from their, I guess, the, what their medical diagnosis at the time was that the mischief is in the heart. And they're not referring to the physical heart, they're referring to the emotional heart. And they said, 
and it has communicated itself to the whole organism. There is no hope unless the cause of his grievous sadness be arrested. Meaning Imam Ghazali being in this state was in this extreme state of sadness because he knew what he wanted to do, but he just couldn't do it. I mean, he had now studied the books of Tasawwuf. He now realized that this is the way that I'm going to get close to Allah and I know I have to do it, but I can't do it. I know I have to do it, but I can't do it. And this caused him to go into this extreme state of sadness. You could even say, and this happens when someone suffers from major depressive disorder, major depression. Oftentimes it paralyzes them. They can't eat, they can't speak. This is how severe it could become. Wallahu alam what his medical diagnosis at the time was, but it hints toward this. Whatever it was, it was from Allah. At that point he knew, he decided that he needed to leave. He said, this is it, I need to leave. No excuses now. I can't even talk, I can't even teach. What am I going to do? So he decided he had to leave. Now when he was deciding when he had to leave, the issue that he would have was if he told people that he was going to leave and isolate himself for a period of time so that he could attach himself to Allah once again, they would say, you're, you're crazy. They would say, you're crazy. You're the top person in our institution, our Islamic university. Why would you need to go and attach yourself to Allah? And it said that the imams of Iraq, they criticized him. They said that, uh, he says, not one of them could admit that the sacrifice had a religious motive because they considered my position as the highest attainable in the religious community. You've already reached the pinnacle of deen. Where are you trying to go now? Right? Now, we, don't have, we have the opposite issue sometimes. We think when we've achieved some pinnacle in, our, our, uh, in, in the life of this world, you're already a, you, know, you already have a full-time job and you're already making you know, half a million dollars. What worry could you have in your life? Right? You know, but we know this isn't true. People that make people that are multimillionaires probably are the saddest people on the planet because it doesn't correlate. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand this. You know, people that we, we think that oh, but you're already the um, you're already the you're already the leader of the of 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 your school. You're already the leader of your you're already the CEO of a company. What what could you want to go and accomplish? But this was a little different. He was master the dean and saying, well, where would you go? You are you already achieved it. So what he told them was that he said he's going to go to Makkah Mukarramah. He's going to go to the Haramain because you can't really argue against that. So he said he's going to go there. What we ended up doing was that he actually routed himself to Damascus first. And he sat in a masjid in Damascus. Uh, and he basically there was a minar, uh, a minaret. And he would every single day go into that minaret, close the door, seclude himself, and engage himself in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he did this for two consecutive years. Two consecutive years, he recognized that this is important for me. This is what he did. Then he went to Jerusalem. He spent some time in Jerusalem, again in isolation, and in the company of people of righteousness. He spent time with them, benefited, and then, and then he left Jerusalem. He said salam to Ibrahim, who's buried in Jerusalem. Then he made his way to the Haramain. He, he went to Mecca and Medina. He said salam to the Prophet, and eventually he returned back. And he says that I returned back thanks to the du'as of my children. They must have missed him. <laughs> but even, he had no resolve of going back, but he went back. And, and after he had returned, he was a completely different person. And in fact, all of the writings that we know of Imam Ghazali today, you know, those monumental works, Ihya I mean, oh, you know, the, uh, 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 the Alchemy of Happiness, I mean, these all were essentially written after Imam Ghazali had transformed. So this is the life, this is, in, a, in, in summary, the, the um, journey that Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, had to take. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this. Some of those we already highlighted. And just want to highlight a couple of these additional ones, inshallah, and then we'll wrap up. The first main point to take from this is look at the honesty of our scholars. Look at the honesty of our scholars. 
someone who look he was such a young age it was 37 or so is when he when this happened to him he had already achieved the pinnacle you know many of the goals that we have in deen he had already achieved it he had already achieved it yet he felt that within himself there was something that was lacking and that was his sincere permanent connection with Allah and we have to constantly check our own lives as well how what is my connection like with Allah how is my relationship with Allah you know, when a person begins to achieve some title in deen, then they begin to focus on other people. They don't turn back and focus on themselves, right? Most people, as they're, as they're making the attempts and struggles to become an imam, and once a person becomes an imam, then what happens? They begin completely focused on the community around them, but how much time do they have, or how much resolve do they have that they, have to, that they choose to take time out of their day or out of their week to turn back and look at themselves and say, well, where am I with Allah? You know, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or as the community gives some of us responsibility, right? We have the option of saying, oh, now I have a responsibility toward my community, and I'm going to completely focus on the community, and I'm going to completely neglect myself. But you don't see this example in Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah's life. He had achieved more than anything any of, any one of us will achieve in our lives. And despite this, he felt that he was lacking in his sincerity with Allah, and this troubled him for a period, an extended period of time. Six months, they say, he went back and forth. And eventually he said, you know what, I need to turn back to Allah. So we have to ask ourselves, where do we stand with Allah? And I can't answer this question for you. Your parents can't answer this question for you. Your friends can't answer this question for you. Everyone has to ask themselves that question. And that is, where do I stand with my Allah? How, am, how sincere am I with my Allah? And am have, am I ready to stand before my Allah? Right. This was the driving force behind Imam Ghazali's transformation. Was that I'm concerned about my salvation and my future. I know there's an akhirah. I know there's, a, there's something coming. But, and I've achieved so much, quote unquote, in my deen. But in reality, what is my relationship with Allah? So no matter what status we achieve in this world, we could become you know, a physician, we could become a dentist, we could become an, an, you know, the world's best engineer, no matter, we could become the world's best alim, we could become the world's best teacher of Qur'an, whatever it might be, it, doesn't give us, it, does, it never gives us the excuse to neglect our relationship with Allah. And it never gives us the excuse to turn away from Allah or to stop perfecting our relationship with Allah the relationship with Allah that a believer, the journey that a believer decides to make in order to draw nearer to Allah, it doesn't end until Allah Ta'ala takes their life away. It never ends. It never ends. That's the first point. The second point that we learn from this lesson is that, look, Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, when he felt that there was something missing in his life, he didn't ignore it. He decided to analyze and study it to the nth degree before he chose that this was the path that he wanted to take. He studied it, he looked into it, and he finally, rec he, and he decided, once he came to terms that, look, the sawf is the way that he wants to attain nearness to Allah, and he feels that this is the way that it's going to happen, then what did he do? He fully 100% committed to it, so much so that he left his major post. He left everything. He literally sacrificed everything because in his mind, at this point in his life, there was nothing more important to him than getting nearer to Allah. And so what did he do? He didn't commit himself 25% or 30%. He 100% committed to this path. And this is something that we should as well look into our own lives and analyze. Like, we have, first and foremost, we have to look at our life and determine what are those things that are important to me. What are those things that are important to me? Now, we are all in agreement that there's nothing more important than drawing nearer to Allah. There's no, there's, no, there's no disagreement in that. So once we 
have that resolve in our heart, then we have to pick those one or two things that we think are going to draw us closer to Allah and then be proficient in it. We have this attitude that we're going to hop around and flip around between this aspect of deen and that one, and I'm going to go to this lecture one day and this conference one day, and you know I'm going to involve myself in these meetings this time, but we're not actually committing. If a person decides that nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is what's important to them, then they have to make that, then, then, and that's the driving force, and they pick one path and they become 100% committed to it. A person decides that the way I'm going to approach my Allah is through the Qur'an. So then you have to dedicate yourself to the Qur'an until there's nothing more that you can take out from the Qur'an. And make that your path of becoming closer to Allah. If you've sat in gatherings like these and you feel like, you know, dhikr and, 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 and gatherings, Allah Ta'ala is remembered, this is a way that you realize, do you recognize the way by which you can become closer to Allah, then you have to become 100% committed to the path of suduk as well. This is a principle in life, it applies to everything. We pick two or three things that we deem to be important to us, important to our life, important to our family, important to, in particular, our relationship with Allah. We become highly proficient and we become 100% committed to these things. This is how people in general make progress. This is how people in general make progress. They make progress in their professional lives this way. We make progress in our relationship with Allah this way. Uh, if, if, we, if we don't commit, let's say, if we don't commit, then we'll be playing games Five years later, we're in the same place we were five years ago. And I've seen this with my own eyes. There are people who come to, the ga- come to gatherings, they might attend this program, they might be involved. And in their mind, they're thinking that I want to become closer to Allah, but they don't actually take the step of commitment. And what happens? Five years later, I see them. Ten years later, I see them they're in the exact same place. And on the other hand, there are people who have decided that they want to commit themselves, make a commitment, right? I want to commit to become you know, a, 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 a pharmacist, for instance. And they commit 100% and they become a successful pharmacist. If, uh, so in the same way, I've seen people in Dean who say, I'm going to commit myself 100%. I'm going to put my blinders on and be completely focused on this path. And five years later or ten years later, they have made tremendous progress. You can look back and say, this person went actually from point A to point Z. You know, or from point A to point, you know, wherever it might be. So this is what we also learned from the life of Imam Ghazali. He researched, analyzed, he looked, and once he decided that something was important to him, he committed to it. Now, that doesn't mean for us, obviously, that we're going to you know, go for two years and isolate ourselves you know, in a mountain. That's not going to happen. That's not practical. But on every, any given day, there should be a period of isolation for ourselves where we focus on our relationship with Allah. Every week or every month, we have gatherings like these where we decide that nothing is important to us at this time than my Allah, or to us than our Allah. And we commit to it. And we commit 100% to it. This is the path, that this is the example that we see from Imam Ghazali rahimahullah. This is the example that we see from many of our scholars. So we ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the tawfiq to learn from the teachings of, of, our, of our pious predecessors. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the tawfiq to be focused in our lives and, uh, and, and grant us the ability to draw nearer to Him. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, pr- pr- move the roadblocks that are preventing us from drawing closer to Him. وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين